From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We tell you what you're good at, and more importantly, we tell you what you're bad at. And it's a very thin slice of life. If you think of all the things you do in a day, how many of them can you point back to because you were good at that in high school? What we should be focusing on instead is, what are you interested in? What are you curious about? Because you're going to have to learn and adapt for life. That's Heather McGowan on the future of American work and education. We'll hear more from Heather on the fourth industrial revolution, how diversity helps keep your blind spots in check, and why losing a job can hurt more than losing a relationship. But first, a word from our sponsors. Over the past several years, Biome has partnered with some of the country's leading cardiovascular teams to power their continuous learning and drive high-quality healthcare delivery. This partnership allows Biome to share new data and insights on performance and develop new intelligence, all in a matter of weeks. Visit biome.io solutions to learn about how the Biome solution, powered by artificial and augmented intelligence, can improve your cardiovascular service line's performance today. Could workflow inefficiencies be preventing you from providing better care? Midmark is focused on developing solutions that help you uncover these inefficiencies, optimize workflow, and improve the patient experience. The Midmark Real-Time Locating System, or RTLS, can reduce wait times by moving patients efficiently through their visits increase patient throughput by utilizing space effectively, and automatically collect data to give you additional insights on further workflow improvements. Contact Midmark today to see how they're transforming the way healthcare is delivered. For more information, visit midmarkrtls.com. Healthcare communication is broken, and SR Health by Solution Reach gives you the most practical solutions to fix it. Stay connected to patients throughout their care journey, improve outcomes, and increase operational efficiency. From diagnosis-based education to appointment-related communications, you need flexibility, reliability, and total control to create the best patient and provider experience. Find out how you can get just that with SR Health at srhealth.com. The way we navigate education and employment has greatly changed over time, and it's still evolving to this day. Trade schools are gaining traction as an alternative to traditional four-year universities, and sticking with just one company for an entire career is now more exception than norm. These are issues today's guest, Heather McGowan, explores on a daily basis. Heather is the second of two keynote speakers at this week's financial conference in Nashville. She'll close the annual MGMA event with a presentation titled, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, A New Leadership Imperative. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're an author and a keynote speaker, and in learning about you, much of your research is on the future of work and the future of learning. And just wondering where that originally came from, your interest in those fields, and uh, was that something from childhood or through your academic work? Where'd you learn that? You know, when I I look back on it now, I'm going to adopt uh, the Steve Jobs expression that the dots don't make sense going forwards. They only make sense when you look at them backwards. Um, When I was young, I started working when I was in junior high 
because I was interested in the world of work. I was interested in having my own money. I was interested in having my own independence from my parents. My parents had to go actually get working papers for me because I was so young and I started work. And I would switch jobs every like three to four months because I was like, since I got the hang of it, I would go do something else. So I had a, an enormous number of jobs, you know, before I even got into university. And then I had a mashup in university because I had an undergraduate degree in design. I started working in product design. I started asking business questions. And I was told I really couldn't ask business questions unless I got an MBA. So I went back and got an MBA. And then nobody sort of knew what to do with me. And then I found my way into, by accident, later on into academia, where I had former university professors saying, you know, we actually need more people to think sort of with a transdisciplinary perspective that work isn't breaking down into silos that it used to. So we need somebody who can sort of see across and you've done that sort of your whole life. And so I was invited to um, work for a university president and build a new college from scratch that integrated 18 existing uh, majors to prepare people for the future of work. We didn't use those words for it then. I had never taught a university class. I had taught very little in my life and they put this in my hands. And in that process, I just kept getting bumping up against, because I use so many people from industry, how badly suited people coming out of university were for the world of work, how quickly the world of work is changing, the difficulties people in the workplace were having adapting to those changes. And so I started using visuals to explain what I thought was happening. And that evolved into writings. And then one of my uh, first real public articles, 100,000 people read it in two days. And I started getting speaking requests from all over the world. The first one was in Australia. And that was in 2000. That whole period of time brought me up to about 2014. Um, and then fast forward to today, all I do is write and speak about the future of work. So it sort of evolved out of looking around and seeing chaos, but seeing an opportunity in the chaos to explain things to people. Mm -hmm. In speaking in places like Australia, Europe, wherever else you've gone around the globe, are we as economies, as cultures, are we addressing work differently? You know, America versus Canada versus Australia versus other countries, or, or what does that look like when you compare those different ways of work? Well, there's a, there's a, it's, it's not just work, it's the preparation for work. And I think the preparation for work is, as we're doing it in the US for the most part, is setting us on the wrong path. We're asking young kids what they want to be when they grow up. We ask university students to pick a major before they step foot on campus if they go to university. And then the first thing we ask each other is, what do you do? And that really focuses your identity on your expression of skills and knowledge at a moment in time. And that mm -hmm. moment in time is getting faster. So we're getting people to sort of set their sights on a singular future self when that future self may not be there or the future self's going to look differently. And in other countries, they do a better job of more holistic uh, education, less of a sort of focus on it, and less of that kind of cocktail, what do you do, that we socialize. So it's a combination of how we're bringing people up to prepare them for work, and also how we're socializing around work and around our identities. And I have a, a book with Chris Shipley that's coming out in April called The Adaptation Advantage. And one of the things we really tackle in the book is this issue of identity, because we think the the fixed occupational identity is getting in the way of people learning and adapting in the way they're going to need to as change continues to accelerate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I experienced that myself in college. I had three different majors at one point or another, and I yep. wound up doing none of those. I, so 
I, I think it's exactly what you're saying there. There's a fixed point in time, hey, pick a major, and that's the route you go, and then you get out there and go, gosh, I don't think I like this so much. So what can we do differently then? Is it really teaching some of the different critical thinking skills, some of the other analytical skills, or what do we need to do so we don't get locked into that pathway and then sort of have to back up and, and start over again? Well, let me first by saying you are not alone at all. Only about 27% of people ever work in the field of their undergraduate major, yet we myopically focus on it. Wow, okay. In those 27%, I would argue a good percentage of them are faculty. So most <laughs> of the people who are telling you about your future are telling you about their own experience, which probably won't be yours. Um, so I think one of the things that we really need to do is we've we've created a system of screening for certainty and screening for set expertise based upon existing knowledge. So we standardize test people to death. We tell you what you're good at, and more importantly, we tell you what you're bad at. And it's a very thin slice of life. If you think of all the things you do in a day, how many of them can you point back to because you were good at that in high school? Mm -hmm. Very small percentage. Right. What we should be focusing on instead is, what are you interested in? What are you curious about? Because you're going to have to learn and adapt for life. We, the change rate is so much is so great that you just can't sit in one set of skills because it's going to change by some form of either globalization or technology. So, focusing people on their innate curiosity, helping them try to connect to purpose and passion, which is not something that's discovered, but it's something that's edited over a lifetime, because that's the fuel source that's going to keep you learning. Like I tell the story sometimes in my talk that. I was giving a talk at the World Bank once, um, and I was people at the World Bank have all gone to Ivy League schools. They're the best and brightest. They're all super smart. They all know it. They're all highly credentialed. And a gentleman said to me, my daughter is really interested in people. She wants to study anthropology, but she's really good at math, so I think she should get a math degree, don't you? And I said, first of all, I never, I've never met your daughter. And second of all, <laughs> absolutely not. Because she may pursue, a, she'll finish a math degree because she's probably smart and obedient. But her passion is in people. And we've never had a, a bigger time in which we need to understand people. Because helping people adapt to change is all of our number one job now. So you've got to follow what interests you and then figure out where the market opportunity is. Mm-hmm. What were your major influences then? So you've obviously, you, you saw at some point that work was important to you, the way we work, but uh, how, did, how did you then, you know, kind of develop your niche and your path? Because you're talking about passion, you're talking about things that you're interested in. So were there major works, major mentors? Uh, who set you on this path? I have been absolutely privileged and blessed by having mentors all throughout my life. My First and foremost, my parents. I was not the kid who did particularly well in school, but they'd have my IQ tested and it didn't match up and they couldn't figure it out. So my mother bent over backwards having, you know, extracurricular. I started taking college classes when I was in high school. I took, I lived outside of Boston growing up. I would go into Boston, take college classes on Saturdays. I took extra art classes. So I had, I had that and most people don't have that. It was incredibly important foundation. And then um, through uh, grade school, high school, uh, coaches, I had mentors all along the way that for some reason or other took an interest in me and said, you know, you're different or special or something like that. And everyone should feel that way 
in some capacity. I had a field hockey coach in high school who changed the rules so I could become a captain as a junior hmm. because she thought I had leadership skills then changed the rules when I became a senior so nobody else could do it. It was weird. <laughs> and then, you know, um, at university, I went, did my undergrad at Rhode Island School of Design. I had a faculty member who changed the rules so I could do an internship when I was a freshman because she, because I was driven to, toward to understand some stuff that I had started in her class that I wanted to finish. Um, when I went, went and got, and that happened throughout uh, my undergrad at RISD, I had absolutely fantastic professors that many of whom I'm, uh, the ones who are still alive, I'm still in touch with. Um, they really changed my life. Um, and then when I went and got my MBA, um, Steve Spinelli, who's one of the founders of Jiffy Lube, was a professor there. He took an interest in me. He said, you're asking all the questions nobody else is asking. You're not looking for the right answer. You're telling me we're not asking the right question. And then uh, when he became president of uh, what was Philadelphia University, is now Jefferson, he's the one who said, come help me build this new college. Now he's the president of Babson. We've worked together a number of times. So I've just been super blessed along the way to have numerous mentors. And then um, uh, four or five years ago, I, uh, Tom Friedman of the New York Times came mm -hmm. and spoke at one of my clients. And my job was to take him in the in the town car from the speaking event to the private dinner, and I ended up having a cocktail with him. We've stayed in touch now for, I think, five years. He's mentioned me in his book. He's written the foreword to my book. He's written, mentioned me in the New York Times. We, uh, he's a huge influence on my life. So I've just been continuously blessed by crossing paths with people who sure. encouraged me in some way and advocated for me and sometimes changed the rules for me. I don't think that's true for most people, and I, I am well aware of it. Right. And you were mentioning different books. Was Are there any books then that you would recommend that really, beyond the ones that you've written yourself, but any of those out there on uh, the way the future of work or the way that uh, the industrial society is set up that uh, have inspired you or helped, you know, shape your way of thinking? Sure. So um, it's interesting you say that. I just finished on LinkedIn. I think yesterday was my last day, 10 days of books. Mm -hmm. We post a book cover of a book that was meaningful to you in, in thinking about how you think about your work life. I'm happy to send you guys that list because I think it's a kind of an eclectic list. That would be wonderful. Um, I, I didn't have Tom Friedman on that list because I sort of feel like everybody's everybody knows his. He doesn't need more advocacy, and I always advocate for him. So right. sorry, Tommy, you're not that you're not on that list. You're <laughs> actually probably number one. But uh, I want to mention one of the books on the list that I think um, almost nobody knows who this person is, and almost everybody has. And he's influenced almost everybody. Do you have a credit card? I do. I think the answer to that, to, to, with the exception, I think about 10% of the population, either a credit or a debit card, most of us have them. Yes. So it was a guy named D. Hawk, and he worked for what was Bank of America in Washington State in the, I want to say the late 50s, early 60s. And he was, I think in some regard, somebody like me, where he had mentors along the way, and people made special exceptions for him and all that stuff. I don't want to suggest that I have his brilliance. I'm not saying that at all, but he's had that same experience where people he had good mentors and he had a mentor at bank of america who said you because he kept getting fired i think you see the world differently and in banking that's rare and i want to give you a year sabbatical to come up with an innovation for banking figure it out he went back to his ranch he watched systems and nature and he said there's nobody in charge in nature it's all based on a series of agreements and we've got banking all wrong and he went back and proposed and created what became the Visa credit card. And almost nobody knows who this guy is. His name's D. Hawk. And he mm -hmm. wrote this book called One for Many about that process of, of and that's a huge, that was one of the, it was pre-internet. It was the first, you know, networked thing. It was pretty cool. And I'm going up to do give a talk in uh, Seattle in April and uh, I'm going to go meet him. 
which is a oh. genre you see 90 now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. But that's that's a that's a really cool story that almost nobody knows. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. only met a, hand, a handful of people who know that 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 one thing. We all know who Bill Gates is. We all know who Steve Jobs is, but we don't tend to know because once he created the music card, he he said, "If I if I'm successful, this doesn't need me." And he mm-hmm. stepped back after it was established, and he was right. Right, right. Um, there was something I wanted to ask you earlier, and and you were talking about. Uh, you know, how we teach, how we learn, how we're forced to, you know, figure it out in a fixed set of uh, fixed time. Um, and I want to ask you your your thoughts, your opinions on sort of the traditional track of school. It's, you know, we go through K through 12, we go through college, maybe we go through graduate schools versus, um, you know, the trade route, the apprentice mm-hmm. route, working with our hands that way. I know my father-in-law, he's from England and he was apprenticed and uh, early on and was able to learn certain skill sets uh, sort of in an engineering type field. Uh, we don't seem to do as good a job with that in America. You would know that better than I would. But what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I have a lot of friends, a lot of people that uh, I've worked with over the years that uh, accumulated a lot of debt in college. And they not that they didn't learn anything in college, but they, they, they just then went back and and sort of learn to trade. And again, it's, well, it's a lot of pressure to put on somebody to figure that out at 16 or 18 or 20. But when you kind of know in your heart, it goes back to what you're talking about, passion, and you like to work with your hands, or you like to work in some field in that regard that doesn't necessarily require that traditional four-year college. Where do you fall on that? And, and where, where are we following that path in America or falling short with it? Um. We are way behind on that. I don't know if you've ever renovated a house, but try to find a plumber or an electrician. It's nearly impossible to find a good one. Right. And they're great jobs. And I think electricians in particular, plumbers for sure, but electricians, when you think about like when we start having smart homes, the electrician could evolve into your local IT person. And there's a huge track there that's going to be needed. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. We're way, way, way off um, in terms of we don't have good uh, tra- pathways to trade schools or apprenticeship programs. And if you think about what you do every day and think about how much of it you could specifically tie back to moments you learned in your first few jobs versus moments you learned in university. And I don't mean to dismiss university, mm-hmm. but there's, there's an, another area I'm working on. There's explicit knowledge, and that's knowledge that can be transferred without a human being involved. So you could learn online, take a test, get the right answer. And then there's tacit knowledge you can only learn through exposure. You can learn through mimicry with um, another human being. And as the world speeds up, more of that explicit knowledge is gonna be consumed by technology. And more of that tacit knowledge is areas that we all need to work in. That's a huge argument for learning through making, experiential learning, apprenticeship learning. And my undergraduate degree was in industrial design. I learned through making things. I learned through trying things out. I learned through proposing the questions myself. There's something about that kind of education that I think we need much more widespread. And we need more pathways and and dignity in the trades and the paraprofessionals because not everybody needs to go to university. It's, Mm -hmm. It's a great solution for a lot of people, not a solution. We all need to learn more but it isn't necessarily we all need to get four-year degrees. Right, and and I say it from a 
for a number of different reasons. Uh, I, I, I come from a, a family of college professors, and so I, I'm certainly not demeaning the college track. I think that's a great one, but I also have the anecdotal information of so many people that I've I've interacted with and gotten to know really well who have been saddled with tremendous amounts of debt that mm-hmm. they then went, gosh, I, I, this isn't what I want to do. I want to go back, just like you said, and become an electrician or a plumber or something else along those lines where they can really work with their hands, design and build things. And they didn't need to wind up with, you know, six figures of, of debt there. So, yeah, I, I, I do believe that we, we really need to do a better job of that. Um, I had printed out an article that you wrote not too long ago. I love the title here. It's, What if the future of work starts with high school? Mm-hmm. Talk, talk us through that. Where, where did you come up with this idea, and what's the philosophy behind that? Well, I, it, you know, a lot of people push back and said it should start with grade school, and, and they may be right. Um, <laughs> yeah. We, we've made sort of uh, grade school into or, or pre-high school into a sort of sorting process. We're going to decide who's smart and who's not, mm-hmm. who's not smart enough, or who's going to go to university and who's not. And if that sorting process, then high school becomes preparation for university courses. None of that is a pathway to reality anymore. Um, what we need to do is start understanding what are the things, and, and I like in the article I mentioned XQ, which in full disclosure, I did a couple of talks for them. They're, um, Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow, started this foundation that's trying to reimagine high schools. Mm-hmm. And um, what, one of the things they figured out is that you've got to kind of, instead of looking at what levels you need to have on everything, it's you need foundational literacies. You need fundamental knowledge. So foundational literacies used to be just math and, and reading and writing, but now it's digital literacies. Um, you also need uh, foundational knowledge. So you need to understand some aspects of history so you can put things in context. Um, you need the ability to collaborate with others. You need the ability to propose new ideas. So they have this sort of framework that kind of sits outside any discipline that talks about and when you put those things together, it sort of starts sketching out, helping you understand what you're interested in. Instead of saying, I'm good at math, or I'm bad at math, or I'm good at reading, or I like science, those are all good things. But putting it in a broader picture that exposes you to more opportunities. Because if you look at the thin slice of life, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today if, I, if it was all predetermined on what I was good at in high school, or more importantly, told I was bad at. So exposing people to more opportunities um, Going back to sort of saying, okay, here's a pathway. If you want to be a plumber or an electrician or a hairdresser, you can't outsource a you know you can't outsource a haircut. You can't you don't <laughs> want to get a robotic haircut. You know you want to have an interaction with other humans. There are yeah. lots of things that are not going to be automated or outsourced that we need every day, and we need human interaction. And there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for people to find a place rather than saying, are you going to university or not? And so the idea is to kind of look at high school where you've got enough sort of maturity and perspective in the world to think about some of the things you might be interested in and so that you take the first step. And the message I really think should be the, the first step is going to be the first step of many. You might step forward, step back, step right, step left. Understand it's a journey where it's treated right now as sort of this predetermined pathway. Get good grades, you'll get a good job, which is not even true. Mm-hmm. In that paper, you talk about two types of thinking and learning that that we need to do a better job with one of those is critical thinking and mm-hmm. our audience that's that's listening to this podcast they're in the healthcare world we talk about critical thinking analytical thinking quite a bit 
The other one that you bring up is learning agility. Mm-hmm. I, I can kind of piece that together, but talk about that. That was a new phrase for me. So what, what is learning agility and how do, we, how do we teach that? How do we do a better job with that? Yeah, there are a few different definitions out there. I think they all kind of link up. So learning agility at the sort of most basic level is can you learn, unlearn, and relearn, to use kind of the, the, the simplest expression for that, which basically means can you, can you learn new information and try new ways of doing things? Can you unlearn, which means let go of doing things when they either no longer work or technology does a better job or the business model changed, and then relearn, which is basically learn again a new way of doing it once you've let go of the old way of doing it. Um, Corn Ferry, the executive search firm, defines it by five dimensions, which I think are like mental agility, change agility, people agility, and they're all sort of learning agility, and they're all kind of in that facet. I call um, this area the agile learning mindset, which is basically, for me, it has four components. It's can you be adaptable? Can you have agency so you understand that learning is your responsibility? And within that agency, you have to have a connection to um, purpose and passion, curiosity, some sort of motivational driver. Can you have actual learning agility, ability to learn, unlearn, know your learning styles, know how you take in information, know if you learn better with others. And then awareness is the last and sometimes most important piece of it. So um, knowing what you're good at, knowing where you need to partner with somebody else, um, knowing so it's self and social awareness it's also market awareness so as I mentioned the the person from World Bank before yes you can go study anthropology but you have to look for a pathway to a job through that or some value creation through that and I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity in anthropology because we're going to have anthropologists embedded in organizations helping us all change so um, Understanding how an organization creates value is very important. It used to be you just get a job and you didn't know how your company worked. You didn't know the business model of your company. It didn't matter. You just did your job. But now with the speed of change and the and the lifespan of companies getting shorter and shorter, pivoting from one business model to the next, you have to understand how your organization creates value and then how you personally contribute to that value creation. So that's what I call market awareness. Mm-hmm. One other aspect of that is there was a time and place in uh, our career paths where we we traditionally would, would take that one job and, and very often just see it through. 35 yeah. years, 40 years, get the gold key, retire, and that was it. And now that's not the case anymore. There's a lot of uh, mobility in the workplace and, and in careers. So is that one of the reasons then that that our brains need to think about it a little bit differently be a little more agile in how we address things it's almost like don't just have the narrow tunnel vision of how we do things at this place but how do things work and and how as you were saying how do we fit into the bigger process talk about that a little bit yeah so it used to be that uh university for example and before that it was high school the job was not only to to make you a well-rounded citizen and educated and all that it was really to get you your first that was how they measured it to get you your first job and your starting salary and universities still work that way they they declare success did you get a degree did you get it in four years or six years did you get a job and what was your starting salary and those are how they declare success problem is that that first job may last 18 months and that debt may last 18 years. Mm-hmm. So it isn't about getting the first job in any of these things. It's your ability to navigate between the first and the second, the second and the third, the third and the fourth, 
It's your ability to sort of um, figure out what you're learning at a place. I use this, I wrote another article called Learning is the New Pension. And it's the idea that we need to look at the future work as learning. So instead of where we once learned in order to work, now we're going to have to work in order to learn continuously. So in every job, you have to look around and say, what am I learning? What can I do with it? Where am I going to take it? If I'm not learning, the job's moving and it's moving away from me if I'm not continuously upskilling and reskilling. Mm-hmm. That's a dramatic shift from get the first job to navigate among jobs. Um, so that's one of the things that I, that I talk about a lot. And um, there's some research out of the UK that a job loss can take twice as long to recover than the loss of a primary relationship. And a lot of people don't even let recover to the same level of well-being. Hmm. Wow. That's because, interesting. Why do, you, why do you believe that is? Because the first thing I ask, I, I, I know so many friends who've lost jobs for one reason or another. And the, depending when in their life they lost it. Like I lost it and I talk about it in my book. I lost a job when I was 24, 25. And it rocked me. I had never been told no before. You Mm -hmm. know, I had never not gotten something I wanted. But I was young enough that I could process that and always keep that in mind. It's always kept me in mind that I have to think about, am I creating value every day for the organization for which I'm engaged? If I'm not, I need to work harder or find a different organization or both. Um, but I've seen friends of mine in their late 40s, 50s, early 60s who lost a job because their industry restructured, which is happening all the time. And they don't want to go to cocktail parties. They don't want to talk to anybody. They are so uh, filled with shame and self-hatred and they can't answer that question. And a lot of times it's, it's financial, but a lot of times it's not financial too. It's they've lost their entire identity. And some people can't ever get it back. Hmm. Wow, that is powerful. Um let me ask you about this then. So you're going to be the closing keynote speaker at the financial conference that's coming up in March uh, in Nashville. Your topic there is the fourth industrial revolution. So if you don't mind, give us a little background then. I remember the first industrial revolution from business courses and history courses. You had the cotton gin, the steam engine, and you know the factories and all that. And walk us through then. What are where are we right now? You know, where, what are some of the different industrial revolutions and just a thumbnail sketch of those and then uh, take us into the fourth industrial revolution. Sure. So the first industrial revolution, as you mentioned, was uh, steam. The second was electrification and um, the beginning of mass manufacturing and divisional labor. The third was computerization. And the fourth is the merging of cyber, physical, and biological systems. And what that means is that, you know, the third industrial revolution sort of laid the foundation of computerization. It connected us with the internet. We could tap, we could knowingly sort of go into a computer and tap into things to get information. And in the fourth, uh, things start communicating without us. So we have internet of things, we have, um, in healthcare, we have, you know, cyber stuff that manages our biological stuff. Like for example, my, my brother had a stroke and um, his, surviving his stroke, he, they realized that he was susceptible for, to more strokes. So they put a little implant under his chest that regulates his, uh, it, it, pays, it records his, his heartbeat. When his heart goes into an irregular rhythm, that increases the chances that he'll have a stroke sometimes soon. And that little chip, when he goes to sleep at night, he has to sleep next to something that looks like an old fashioned kind of um, answering machine Mm -hmm. and what it's doing while he's sleeping is is getting the information from that little chip under his skin and uploading it to the cloud so his doctors can keep track of his heart 
performance. My brother's part of the Internet of Things. You know, his body is, is, and there are lots of examples of that. It just happened. I know that one. So those are kinds. There's some of the kinds of things that happened in the fourth industrial revolution. So it's, it's. Uh, I've heard it described as when things wake up, when everything around us has some sort of intelligence in us and can communicate without us. And it's when things happen for us and around us. And so how does that impact work? It, one of the ways I, I talk about it is in the third industrial revolution, we wanted people to store certain skills so that they could become experts on things. And the more technical skills, the better. But as we sort of build out the fourth industrial revolution where the technology is is sort of built for us, we need people who can make meaning out of those things. So if your loan is now at the bank and it's an algorithm read it and gave it a score, the human has to make sense of what the algorithm spit out. Um, so the human shifts their relationship with the tool. So instead of learning a tool, like you had to learn Excel in order to use it, you're now learning from and with the tool. And it's a shift. And so instead of focusing on everybody needs to learn STEM, and we do need people to have digital literacies, we do need people working in STEM, we also need people who can make sense of the things that the tools are doing. People who can um, focus on their uniquely human skills. Like your uh, audience, as I understand it, are the people who are on the front line of dealing with other humans, sometimes on a very bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may have technology tools in the background that make that whole process more efficient, but their ability to connect to that human and help them understand and walk them through their process, that's what the focus becomes. It's our human interactions and technology sort of recedes in support of the human. Mm-hmm. One of the key parts of this fourth industrial revolution that you've written about is diversity. Uh, I'm just wondering, is this diversity in race, gender, age, all of the above? Tell us about that. Um, all of the above for a whole variety of reasons. So representative diversity, so you know, race, gender, culture, that sort of thing, is, is, has always been good so that the outside of your company, the inside of your company looks like the outside of your company. Um, and there have been numerous studies that um, diverse teams are superior at solving problems because they can check their blind spots. So whatever blind spot I have, if I'm on a team with someone who's unlike me in terms of race or gender or culture or background, they're going to catch something I wouldn't catch. So in terms of that diversity in that regard, it's got to move beyond a nice-to-have HR strategy to a core business strategy. Um, in terms of age diversity, we've been throwing out sort of our older population and lunging at younger population because they have digital skills, when in reality we've hemorrhaged a lot of the tacit knowledge in our organizations, the people who really knew how things worked, who knew the customers, who knew the market. So there's a real argument for um, keeping older workers in, in the workplace. And I've also got some studies that we've always thought that younger people could learn faster, but it turns out our cognitive peaks uh, go throughout the lifespan. So while our, um, our cognitive uh, fluidity is, is greatest at 18 to 20, our ability to read emotions is in our 40s, our ability to build vocabularies later in their 40s, our crystallized knowledge is later to our 50s. So there's a lot of cognitive peaks we're missing when we throw out, throw out our older workers. And then there's another element of diversity that's just starting to emerge called uh, cognitive diversity. So people who just think differently than you do. They may look exactly like you. They may have the same background. But if you think about that person you had on your team or the person you interviewed, kind of irritated you because they asked you a question you hadn't <laughs> thought about. Yeah. <laughs> Hug that person. Hire that person. 
they're checking your blind spots because there's a there's some uh, a study by Alison Reynolds and David Lewis um, out of London. They've written about it in Harvard Business Review that the teams that can learn the fastest and adapt the fastest have a combination of psychological safety and cognitive diversity. So they have a, you have a group of people who think differently, but they respect each other. They give each other airtime. They make a s- sort of safe space, for lack of a better word, for all ideas to come out. Those are the teams that are really winning, as opposed to you know teams that are all the same or teams that fight all the time. So that's there's a lot of answers to that diversity question, but we right. need all of the all of those types because if we don't, you see what happens in terms of technology when you look at um, facial recognition software fails on anything other than a white male, because eighty some odd percent of it was created by a white male. Hmm. And that was unintentional. No, I mean it's just you don't you're not aware of your own biases. Unless you have someone around you who's different than you that makes you aware of your biases. So we have the danger of a lot of technology fails because we have not been diverse enough in some aspects of uh, technology. And facial recognition software is one area that's been well documented. Mm-hmm. In your studies, have you looked at how to best harness all of this diversity? Because I think we've all been in these uh, sort of... Uh, brainstorm meetings and there's just so many ideas so many thoughts flowing in there and you walk out of it and and you've accomplished nothing sometimes you're even farther behind than when you started so how do you how do you harness that how do you get all of these great different ideas different people from different backgrounds different ages um, coming together different ways of thinking as you said and you come together and then you're able to harness it and, and make it uh, a positive. Yeah, so um, Google looked at this and Google does everything from a data perspective and they said, we wanna figure out how to make the best performing teams. And we're gonna look at every data set we can capture, which for them is you know thousands of them. Is it age, is it height, is it race, is it people who know each other, is it cultural background, is it different cultural backgrounds? So they set up I think it was 180 different teams that were working at Google that they just kind of did this analytical layer over work that was already going on. And they found that across the board, the number one determinant of a successful team was number one psychological safety, which is, are you creating an environment where people feel comfortable saying, I don't know, people feel comfortable proposing ideas that might be crazy, people proposing uh, uh, making mistakes and saying, you know what, I tried this and it was wrong and I'm not punished for trying something and being wrong. Um, And then, but close to psychological safety was absolutely the first. The other elements of success were, does the team have, you know, like direction and a sense of purpose? So they're they're all kind of going towards something as opposed to this random exploration that you get out of the meeting and you go, why did we do that? What are we doing? Um, everybody gets equal airtime, so everybody's expected in, in, to show up and be accounted, accountable. Um, everybody has, uh, it, it reaches some sort of higher purpose, like we're doing this because something other than the, the goal that people feel connected to, and then it connects to their own values. Mm-hmm. When you have those things in alignment, you apparently that is the way to go. Okay. Do you have a, a real-life example then of a team or a company that is – really in the thick of the fourth industrial revolution and making it work. Yeah, I think that there are a few examples. There's some stuff that's going on at um, IBM. And and the reason I think that this is a good example of the fourth industrial revolution is in the fourth industrial revolution, we're going to have to be much more fluid about what we do. Um, And it isn't a single fixed occupational identity. So one of the things that they 
um, they do at IBM is they have an internal sort of HR function that says, you've got this background, your job's going to change because of technology, but you have these skills and you could pivot to this job if you added these additional skills. So this, there's a, a learning plan and pathway for everybody in the organization that wants one. Um, AT&T did that more than a decade ago. They spent a billion dollars because they realized, you know, our company was founded by people who climb telephone poles. Mm -hmm. And now we need people who could manage cybersecurity in the cloud. Um, and they have transitioned about 100,000 people by saying, very similar to IBM, you know, kind of here are the emerging jobs, here's your skills, here's your pathway. Um, so the organizations that have made learning part of what they do every day, I think, are good examples of people adapting to the fourth industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. um, final thought then, we've been talking about the future of work, what it looks like. So what can our listeners do to best adapt to it, to position themselves to be successful in it? I know that uh, in one of your papers here, you developed a kind of a grid here. It's called the future of work, evolution of work. One of the pieces here is learn a, learn a barterable, <laughs> barterable mm -hmm. skill. Um, another thing is hyper-focus on a marketable skill. There's some different pieces there. What are, what are some of these things then, and explain those, what people can do to, to make themselves successful? Yeah, I think the chart you're referring to is me describing how work has evolved from uh -huh. you used to have to have a barterable skill and then a hyper-focus on a, a skill. So one of the things I say, say to people is if, if uh, your curiosity, your purpose, your passion is going to be your fuel source. And, and I do think it is because I think that ex internal motivation is so much stronger than external motivation. The more we can connect people to their own interests and sense of purpose and drive, the easier this adaptation process is going to be. So I say to people, um, make a list of what you do every day for a week, two weeks if you can do it. And at the end of every day, look at the list of things you did and say, this is the thing I woke up thinking about because I was excited about it. Or this is the thing I woke up thinking about because I was so just drained by the idea that I had to do this task. Um, and then at the end of the week or two weeks or a month or how long you do it, start looking at that list of what were you excited about and you tackled first versus what did you uh, avoid and ignore? And is there the potential to shape your current job or prepare for a future job that taps more into the things you're excited about? Because work will feel less like drudgery if it's really closer to your kind of self-expression. What are the things that give you energy? What are the things you wake up excited about? Focus on those things and, and it may say, oh, I need to get a degree or I need to take a course. I need to find a mentor. I need to leave this company. Maybe a whole variety of things, but focus on that because that's what's going to help you adapt the most is your own internal drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one issue can be you can weigh all these things and then you finally have to make a decision. So what's your yeah. way of doing that? What is your prompt or your process for, you know, after you've weighed all the options, pros and cons, figured out, all right, I'm in. This is the way I'm going to go now. I have been so blessed in my life that I have been able to do work that I love pretty much my entire career. But when I get to a point where I get up every day and I'm like, God, I hate doing this. I am so done with this. <laughs> 
I'm tired of hearing this problem that nobody can fix or change and I can't fix it, they can't fix it, they won't change. It's time for me to go somewhere else. It's time to, for me to have a different experience. I think there's a there's a real fear of job change. There's a real fear, and I've never had that fear, so I don't know what that's like. But I meet so many people after my talks who say, you know, I want to do this, but my boss wants me to do this. I said, well, then find a new boss. Mm-hmm. I mean, your boss should want you to hit your highest levels. They should want everybody on their team to hit their highest levels. And if they're suppressing you for some way or blocking you from doing something, if there isn't a real practical reason for doing it, then you shouldn't be in the job anymore. Find another one. You're free to go. You know, we all have that agency. That's why agency is so important. Heather McGowan, speaker, author, and futurist, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Biome, Midmark, and Solution Reach for sponsoring this week's show. Also, thanks to our guest, Heather McGowan. To see Heather's list of recommended reads or to browse any of her articles, search Heather E. McGowan on LinkedIn. On a personal note, we were saddened to hear about the lives lost and those affected following the Nashville tornadoes earlier this week. For me personally, Nashville's not far from home, and it's one of my favorite cities. You know, events like this are heartbreaking, and despite these circumstances, MGMA's financial conference is currently set to take place. For those who will still be attending, we wish you safe travels and hope to see you there. Thanks for listening.